The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about one of the most important slices of the China-Africa trading relationship, and it's going to focus on minerals. Now, we all know that China has been driven and motivated by the natural resources extraction business in China for a very, very long time. But yet what's poorly understood or little understood is the role and the importance of the mineral trade in particular. But I think a good way to set up our discussion is to step back and look at the state of current China-Africa trade as a whole with some 2018 numbers. So please bear with me. It's really important for our discussion that we have this picture. So I'm going to go through a bunch of numbers. It might be a little bit hard to follow, but I hope you can stay with me. So last year, uh, in 2018, China-Africa trade uh, was up actually 19.7% from 2017, and it crossed back again over the $200 billion level to about $204 billion in bilateral trade. Exports from China to Africa we're at about $104, $105 billion, which was up almost 11%. And then imports from Africa were at just about $100 billion. So the balance of trade uh, was quite equal. The problem is, is that when you actually look a little bit closer, the concentration of where that trade is becomes highly, highly intense. So about 10 countries made up 70% of all that trade. So the trade is not spread evenly across the continent. Now, for our discussion today, it's really important to understand where the breakdown is in these natural resource materials are. So the World Bank says that last year, in 2018, $46 billion was traded in fuels, which is mostly oil, $37 billion in minerals, which will be the focus of our discussion today, and $13 billion in wood products. So Cobus, you know... When we look at that and we look at these very, very big numbers, on the surface, the balance of trade sounds healthy, but that there are some really big discrepancies, particularly when we talk about in the mining business. Yes, um, certain certain African countries play a really big role um, in in certain mineral fields, um, and we've been particularly talking about certain strategic minerals that are um, that are key to technological um, development initiatives in China. The, the, here we're talking about minerals like tantalum, for example. Um, in other in other cases, African countries actually play a much smaller role than we would assume, um, and. As a whole, if you look at the entire picture, it just becomes so clear how dominant raw minerals and raw resources trade is in the China-Africa relationship. It, it makes up almost the entire relationship. And not just in the China-Africa relationship, but let me give you a, just a sense in a lot of the African economies exactly how important the minerals trade is. So in these countries that I'm about to list, I think seven countries here, minerals account for 80% of the government's budget. 
That's Botswana, Congo, DR Congo, Gabon, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Sudan. 80% of the government budget tied to minerals. Minerals accounted for 50% of export earnings in Mali, Mauritania, Mozambique, Namibia, and Zambia. So, Kobus, you're absolutely right. The importance of minerals is absolutely essential. You cannot understand the China-Africa relationship without understanding the minerals trade. So that's why we really wanted to find an expert who understood this and not necessarily someone on the extraction side. And that's what we've talked about a lot over the over the past, but also on the trading side, what happens to those minerals as they move through the Chinese supply chain and end up in your iPhone, in your Android phone, in that electric vehicle that you have in all of the electronics that we that we use, in a lot of the the steel that makes up the bridges and all the infrastructure that the Chinese are making around the world, and then selling steel around the world, a lot of that begins with minerals in Africa. So we wanted to turn to an expert, and we found Albert Rugaba, who is based in Shenzhen, China, 22 years in China. 22 years. That is just remarkable. Albert is a commodity trading expert who works between China and Africa, and he's got specific experience in the non-ferrous metals trade, including copper, tantalum, tin, and also he's dabbled in the timber trade as well. So, Albert, thank you so much for staying up late, joining us from Shenzhen in southern China. We really appreciate it, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric and Kobas. I'm really super excited uh, to be on the podcast, and uh, I'm a long-term listener, so I'm really honored. Well, we found. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. We're humbled that you've been listening to us for all these years. Uh, I came across your LinkedIn posts, uh, and you're talking about the lithium trade. You're talking about the EV markets and all these different aspects of the China-Africa mineral trade. I think before before we get into too much detail, why don't you kind of pick up where I was left off in terms of all of the data and talk about the big picture of where we are today in 2019 about the, the China-Africa mineral trade and, and how important is it for China and how important is it for many of the African countries that we talked about? All right. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Eric. So I will start with uh, basically I think most people hear a lot uh, about the minerals in terms of copper. Uh, we have iron ore. So we have three major minerals that are actually Africa-connected. You have copper, which is supplied by the countries like uh, DRC and Zambia. We have uh, bauxite, which is a new, uh, what we call the new minerals that are becoming really important into this, uh, in, into the technology field. It's, uh, bauxite is supplied by uh, Guinea, which has actually become the biggest supplier of bauxite to China. Uh, that's uh, 10 years ago, Guinea was not even on the map of bauxite producers. Then we go down to iron ore, which is uh, supplied by uh, South Africa and Mauritania. And uh, we have uh, this very niche mineral that uh, Kobas mentioned, which is called tantalite. Uh, it's a very controversial mineral, uh, which is very uh, strategic. It's actually considered to be uh, a strategic mineral by both U.S. Uh, and China. It goes into the production of high-tech uh, product into me into military hardware as well and it's actually produced a lot from the great uh, African region uh, in Africa Rwanda and DRC uh, produce roughly 60% of the tantalite that comes to China and this is done by artisanal mining and it's really amazing how 
you know, 30, 40, 50 percent, uh, 50,000 people can really produce this kind of, you know, important minerals. Uh, so there is uh, quite a number of minerals, but what people forget is that from African perspective, the export of minerals are very important. But when you look at the picture from China perspective, these are very small players. Uh, let's take copper, for instance. Copper, uh, ERC produced 1.2 million tons uh, of copper ore uh, last year. When you take the biggest producer, which is Chile, they are in 5.7 million. So there is no comparison. Chile has a representative office in China. They have Codelco, which is all over China. Um, when you look at the DRC, uh, National Mining Company, this is not really a very well-known company. So on the African side, we still have a lot of uh, catch-up to do if we want to be really uh, important players into this uh, you know, minerals trading. I was really amazed to hear what a large part of the of the these uh, minerals like like um, tantalite are actually extracted by artisanal miners. Um, do you, what, what should gov African governments think about that situation? Like, is that is that a, is that a, a beneficial situation? You know, in in terms of job creation in in Africa, or is it something that that would be actually be better for the environment and for the country as a whole if big companies moved into that space? Um, the artisanal mining is a good job creation uh, sector, but it's not it's not by choice. It's because all the villagers who live around this uh, mining asset have a, a, uh, an uncle or a grandpa who used to dig and they used to come back home with some uh, stones and he would sell them for uh, you know a, a few pennies. And so they, they, they have been digging, but it's because they have no other alternative. When you look at the other kind of method they are using to dig these minerals, it's really appalling. I mean, it's just shovels and holes. I mean, it, 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 it's not really... The governments, African governments, could be doing much more to organize them. I, some have tried, like in Rwanda, they have tried to put them in cooperatives, which makes them easier to actually uh, access financing because mining sector is a, a very capital-intensive sector. You need machines, you need excavators, you need uh, machines that are going to separate the minerals. When you take a stone of, let's say, uh, iron ore. This this stone actually contains more than seven or eight minerals. So in order not to lose the value, you will need to separate them, to crush them. You put them on a separator machine that is going to differentiate all these seven minerals, and you sell them separately. This is the how you create value. Now, if you're selling this single stone as one single entity to a trader who's going to just consider it as iron ore, let's say 60% of iron ore, but you are losing on these other 30%, which you could have sold even for a higher price. So there is a lot of, uh, I, I think, government are not, because these artisanal miners do not pay taxes, they are not seen as a bankable group from the government, from the African government perspective. But if they were organized and if they were put in these cooperatives and given loans, they could actually really accelerate some of the country's growth. Yeah, but I mean, that implies that there's a functioning government that could do that. But in the Eastern DRC, there is really no functioning government. And I, and when we say the word artisanal miner, 
you know, it, where I'm from in Berkeley, California, they talk about artisanal breads and they talk about artisanal <laughs> candles and it's this bourgeoisie shishi thing, right? You know, there, this is exactly the polar opposite of it from everything that we've read about from the human rights organizations that, and, and from all of the news coverage, the, the mining in the DRC for a lot of these minerals is probably the closest thing to a hell on earth. It just looks horrific. Eric, I totally agree with you, but if I take countries that are even organized, a country like Ghana or Guinea, let's say, let's not even, let's move a bit away from the mining and talk about the transportation, because mining actually involves a lot of sectors. You have the supply of the uh, input that goes into digging all these minerals. You have chemicals, you have trucks to move them around. Actually, there is one element that is not talked about, it's the transport. When we infrastructure, the reason, you know, all these sectors are not developing is, is infrastructure lacking. When Zambia and DRC, they transport their copper by trucks, you are moving one million tons a year using trucks. It's not cost effective, it's not competitive, and it's not in the long term, you cannot continue to operate like that. So really, there is the infrastructure that has to be taken care of, but uh, when I look at a country like Guinea, uh, they could organize these artisanal miners in a better way. They have a government that is there which is collecting uh, taxes, but uh, the thing is, yeah, I haven't seen much action on that side and it's really frustrating. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Well, very quickly then, on the infrastructure side, which is there was a movement in the DRC, and I'm not sure if it's been elsewhere, but to process some of the minerals before they are exported out. And that would increase the cost, but it also allows for the local government to capture more of the value on the supply chain. It makes sense. And that's what Africa as a whole needs to do, whether it's cocoa in Ghana, whether it's gold or tantalum, or any of these minerals or raw materials, the more that they can do to add value to the product before it's shipped out, that will help advance these economies. But it collapsed. That effort in the DRC collapsed. And in part from what I understand, and again, I'm not 100% sure about this, the Chinese weren't really that thrilled with it because they said it would be cheaper for them to process the materials back in China rather than to do it locally in the Congo. And I guess my question is, is what's the relationship between these artisanal mines, the Chinese middlemen who are there, and then the government? And are the Chinese generally regarded as a positive force, or are they regarded as a force that keeps labor standards down, pushes costs down, and, and doesn't pay attention to environmental or labor rights? Uh, it's uh, When it comes to artisanal mine, miners, it's a, it's a very hard... Uh, these are hard people to deal with, even for a local African, I have to say. Uh, so let's say most of uh, the Chinese traders who are there, they just sit in, uh, they have a warehouse. Artisanal miners will bring, uh, let's say, uh, for uh, cobalt, which is has actually has a lot of uh, small Chinese companies that are 
you know, collecting cobalt and sending it to China. So they will have a, a warehouse somewhere in Kisangani, and then the artisanal miners or uh, a middleman will bring it and uh, put it there. They uh, they test it and check the percentage. And it's basically a trade of minerals against cash directly. Uh, now, when it goes to the mining companies, there is a, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag, uh, but I will have to say that most of these mining companies, uh, unless really they are put uh, into a framework where they know they're going to be uh, penalized, they will actually really ruin the environment in, uh, in in most cases. It has been the case in Zambia with the uh, with the European uh, mining companies. Uh, the Chinese companies uh, have have had their own share of blaming. But generally speaking, uh, what I have seen really in extraction, um, in the environmental wise, is not very encouraging. There is no the state institutions that are supposed to be checking these uh, infractions are not well funded. Most of them actually have no, uh, uh, you know, means to move around all, all these mining areas to control. And uh, again, you have corruption. So if you have an, an official showing up at your working site, uh, we have a, 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 a forest exploration in Cameroon and we know how it works. Even if you have all your paper, if an officer will not live without uh, some kind of uh, end over to him as a gesture, so there is a lot of uh, really a, a, a lot of problems uh, either be by the non-functioning institutions or the lack of means or the corruption itself. So, if you look at the at the, the mineral sector in Africa as a whole, um, and particularly if you look at very large scale um, products like you know like iron ore or chrome or or copper, um, you know I remember reading reading the the communique from the the Bandung conference in 1955, which was this big conference of kind of it's where the non-aligned movement started. It's essentially all of the all of the developing world countries, including China, meeting up um, and trying to make make a block that are, that was not aligned to either the U.S. or to the Soviet Union. In 1955, they actually one of the 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 kind of big goals that they set themselves was the development of raw minerals, you know, kind of to add value to to raw minerals by by refining them. That is still, you literally still see that as the number one priority on development plans in Africa in 2019. The same thing, 20, 1955 to 2019, there hasn't seemingly been any real development or any real progress in in achieving that goal um, of, of actually refining African minerals so that Africa can then sell it for more, so it can then plow extra profits back into its development. What is holding it back? Uh, well, I think, yeah, as Eric said, politicians or the governments have actually tried to ban uh, export of raw minerals, which is a good thing, but you have to address the problems that are actually, you know, stopping it from happening. First, when you need to process these minerals, you need a lot of electricity. A mineral smelter uses a lot of electricity to actually heat these minerals until they melt. We're talking about a, a large amount of electricity. So you need proper infrastructure, you need uh, stable electricity, and you need cheap electricity. Uh, when you have... Uh, electricity that is costing uh, 
12, 14 cents when it's actually six, uh, I think it's like uh, 14 cents USD. And in China, you have it at uh, half the price. From a business perspective, I would understand someone who will say, I have to take it where I'm going to process it at a cheaper cost. So the governments have to invest into this uh, electricity supply. They need to invest into railway uh, transportation to move the minerals uh, efficiently and at, uh, at a cost-effective price. Uh, and you also need to work on training all these uh, engineers and uh, technical personnel that are going to uh, maintain these machines and work in these factories. Uh, of course, there are countries that are well equipped with the, the right technicians, but in most cases, it's electricity that really makes it uh, almost impossible to operate these factories. Let me take us from Africa, where we've been talking about the mines, and all the way over to Shenzhen, China. For those of you not familiar with Shenzhen, um, try to think of Silicon Valley and then inject steroids into it. <laughs> and then you'll get kind of halfway to where Shenzhen is. I mean, Shenzhen is just a crazy place. The first time that I was in Shenzhen was back in the late 90s, and it was a fishing village. Really, it was a fishing village. Nothing was there. Uh, today, it's a city of 10 million people. It is the home of DJI Electronics, those drones you fly, Tencent, uh, Huawei, the, some of the, the most well-known Chinese companies, Transcend, Technomobile. So a lot of those phones, 30% of the African phone market is coming out of a company in Shenzhen. You are there. You've been in China for a very, very long time. Um, I'd like to talk about how these minerals are being used and some of the trends and, and, and what's going on. And in particular... There's a, there's a program that the government doesn't talk up very much anymore, but it used to. It's called Made in China 2025. And part of Made in China 2025 is uh, electric vehicles. And electric vehicles have a number of minerals that come from places like the DRC. It's been my understanding that the Chinese had an ambition to try and control the minerals that go into those electric vehicles as part of the supply chain so that they could dominate this industry into the 21st century. That was always my control, my understanding of it. I don't know if they were coming close to it, but I'd like for you to give us the view about the EV industry, about the electronics industry from the vantage point of Shenzhen and what you're hearing and seeing in China. So, Shenzhen, as you, you rightly mentioned, is really this booming uh, high-tech city that is right next to Hong Kong. Um, it has one of uh, the biggest producers of battery, uh, BYD. Uh, it's really a very big company. So when you talk about these new sectors, there is really new minerals that are emerging. So this is where cobalt comes in play, into playing. This is where you have the aluminium, the bauxite, uh, Shenzhen is a very clean city. They have actually uh, kicked out all the factories, so they are remaining with uh, a clean uh, tech. But these factories need to be taken somewhere else. So they have been either moved inland in China, and some are actually looking for locations in Africa. This is another opportunity uh, for African countries really to grab on. So when you talk about, let's say, uh, the EV batteries, there's a lot of minerals that are going to be really super important in the future. You have lithium, you have uh, 
the cobalt. You have copper, which is also becoming uh, very important. Uh, so the only worry I see that uh, Africa is not well positioned into these new minerals, except for cobalt, which is uh, which DRC accounts for roughly, I think, 60% of the world production. So there is a lot of opportunities that I foresee, but from my understanding, uh, China, at least from the place uh, I'm sitting right now in Shenzhen, they want to be able to process that last part that is going to be, um, a, 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 I guess, the tech content one. Yeah, China is not really, uh, does not encourage anymore these smelters, the dirty smelters to be uh, put up uh, at least nearby Shenzhen or uh, in Guangdong. So, yeah. So in theory, there is the opportunity for Africa to to do some of this processing itself, even though it will probably be bad for the African environment. There is an opportunity to take because, uh, look, there are technologies that allow uh, a factory to, to, to really process all these away used water or used chemicals. It's just a matter of wanting to invest or not into the cleaning of the of all these products. So there is a big opportunity for Africa. Companies are always, uh, obviously, Africa does not come as the first choice for someone sitting in China, but we've, I've done it in the past in my previous job. It's something that is doable. Uh, these factories can uh, move to Africa if the right conditions are, uh, are given to them. And one of the most important is this infrastructure that is being, of course, upgraded with the China funds. But needs really to be focused on which ones are going to be important for these factories to move. I'd like to close our discussion uh, with an understanding of how important Africa is for China in terms of the minerals trade, because many people in Africa often overstate the importance that they feel that they have for China. And that is because the minerals and the raw materials have been are in abundant supply. And let's kind of keep the coltons and the special strategic minerals off the table, but more of the general, the copper uh, and, and, and gold and, and, and some of these other metals like that and talk about those because China now has truly a global footprint. It has big mining activities in Australia where it gets bauxite. It has huge operations in places like Chile and Peru and South America. Uh, it's doing a lot throughout Asia. So Africa is just one player among many. But if you could contextualize for us, generally, how important is the continent relative to other parts of the world where China has its operations? I think Africa is still an important player. Uh, but from my from my point of view, I think it's more seen as a future production hub because there is still room to really uh, create more production. When uh, we take South America, which is one of the big, uh, I would say, the other competitive com uh, continent with Africa, uh, either be Chile or Peru, they, most of their mines have gone underground. So they are really kind of depleted uh, whereby the cost of production it keeps going up. So Africa still has a lot of unexploited, uh, really open pit and greenfield uh, concessions. So in my point of view, Africa is important as a future production hub. Uh, but for the moment, even though the production uh, capacity is going up, 
there is still really uh, a, a serious problem of infrastructure that is kind of uh, uh, slowing down this development. It's, there is a lot of things happening. There is a lot of African companies that are really uh, trying to get into these uh, sectors and really uh, make things work and make sure that all these factories are set up. So uh, it's not that bad, but uh, when so for someone who lives in China, you really uh, see the opportunity and the and the, the way this should be done in a, in a much faster way. So things are moving, but not as fast as we would like them to be. Albert Rugaba is originally from Rwanda, but he spent the past 22 years in China, now working and living in Shenzhen. He's a commodities trading expert who has experience, uh, as you can see, across the minerals, timber, and, and really kind of you know facilitating the supply chain of minerals from uh, places like you, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia, Guinea, and all these other places, getting it over to China and then obviously getting it through the supply chain to end up in things like your phone and your cars and all the things that we use and take for granted. So, Albert, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to recommend that everybody check out Albert's page on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find him at Albert, A-L-B-E-R-T-R-U-G-A-B-A. -E He's posts some excellent uh, articles on the China-Africa mineral trade and also just on the minerals and the commodities trading business as a whole. So, Albert, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And uh, as a big fan, I'm honored to be on this on the podcast again. Thank you. Kobus, the most interesting takeaway for me from what Albert said was the idea that it's really up to the local government to manage this process. And the fact that they are not doing this effectively, either by implementing labor laws, implementing environmental protection laws, or this processing agreements in order to add value to the minerals before they are exported. And it brings back the point that you brought up from 1955 to 2019. There has been no progress whatsoever in modernizing the mining industry. And to the, it's really starting to hold back so many African countries because other countries around the world are adding efficiency, building infrastructure, lowering the cost of production, and yet in places like Zambia, where they have decrepit old aging infrastructure, the cost of production is simply too high. And that is tragic because then Chinese investors will turn away and go somewhere else and it deprives Zambia of badly needed jobs and badly needed revenue. Yeah, completely. I mean, I wouldn't probably, I probably wouldn't say that no progress has been made. You know, some, some African countries have moved somewhat in the direction of, you know, of, of beneficiating their own minerals. For example, um, uh, Botswana managed to, to strike quite a kind of hard nosed deal with, with De Beers to, to set up diamond processing in Botswana rather than exporting raw diamonds to places like Belgium. Um, so, you know, so, so they, they do make small advances here and there, but they're up against such a, such an, an organized, um, you know, mineral sector and up against, I think, a whole world economy that is really only interested in keeping Africa as an, as a, a supply, a supplier of raw materials. Um, and, you know, I, I think in that sense, it brings us in a different in a different way to the neocolonialism narrative, the idea that China is this kind of neocolonial 
power stripping Africa of its resources. I think that's a wrong and oversimplified way of looking at the relationship. I think what it rather reflects is more Africa's position in the world. Because everyone is has that same relationship with Africa. It's not just China. And it's, you know, it, it reveals so much about what Africa represents in the world um, and how much work it takes to try and overcome that. And as Albert said, that this is a cash for minerals relationship. And whenever we bring up the colonialism argument, uh, it's very, very important to get these definitions right because colonialism at its core was not about compensating people for whatever it was. Now, the cash that they're giving may be low. It may not be a lot, but it is still a cash for minerals deal. And I think that undermines the colonialism argument as well and, and the imperialism argument. And also very important to understand that what the Chinese are doing in Africa is very, very much the same as what they're doing in South Asia, in South America, and other parts of the world. And in that sense, I think there is some competition and some pressure on African governments because Chinese mining companies have choices. They can go wherever it makes most sense for them to go. And I think that's something that's another added level of, of anxiety for, for countries like Zambia, that they have to get their act together or else those copper mines are not going to be as active as they could be. So what do you think and, of this? You know, just, just, oh, just, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, sorry to interrupt you awkwardly. Um, the, I would add to that is that I, would, there's, I don't know that there's any real, real realistic distinction to be made between how, how China relates to these countries and how places like Europe or the US or Canada or Australia relate to them. You know, this idea that, oh, China's stripping Africa bare, but somehow Europe isn't, you know, is, is, is ridiculous. Um, I think, you know, China, I think, came as a latecomer to the continent and in a lot, in a lot of ways, they're following rules that were set up by, by extremely powerful industries that are located in places like London and Amsterdam and New York. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's the reality. And the, those, those markets run how, what, what is possible for Africa and the world. Um, and, you know, to, to a certain extent, it becomes the, the, the path of least resistance for both Africa and China to simply follow those paths that have already been set out and to try and kind of develop a different kind of mineral in, uh, economy in Africa takes so much investment, so much work, so much kind of concerted effort from a government that, that, it, that it becomes clear why it's so difficult to do and why it hasn't been achieved yet. So tell us what you think of the mineral trade and the Chinese role in it. It is very, very controversial. People have some very strong opinions. A lot of people, though, really make the mistake, as Kobus pointed out, in somehow you know, separating the Chinese from the Barrick Golds, Barrick Gold, of course, coming from Canada, uh, some of the Australian mining companies, the Americans are there, all of the major European mining companies are also in Africa. They've been doing this for a lot longer than the Chinese. Do you see any difference in what the Chinese are doing? And again, I, I brought this up earlier in the discussion. There is a big human rights component to all of this, particularly when you talk about the mining situation in the places like the DRC as well, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty. A lot of groups have documented this and highlighted the Chinese role. Again, we would love to hear what you think of this. You can post on all of our various social media platforms. We'll have information about that at the end of the show. And of course, you can email us directly, either cobus at chinaafricaproject.com or message me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. We love getting your mail. We reply usually within 24 hours, most weeks. Uh, so 
Let us know. Tell us what you think. We would love to hear from you. And of course, if you want to stay on top of China Africa news, we really, really encourage you to sign up for our uh, email newsletter that goes out every Monday. It's free. And it basically is a curation, a digest of the week's top China Africa news. Go find it at our ChinaAfricaProject.com website. Okay, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.